You're listening to the Run the Riot podcast, where we talk about all things ultra running. I'm your host, David Terrio, and man, I'm pumped that you are here. Let's see what we can get into today. You are listening to the Run the Riot podcast, and I'm so glad you're here today. Today, we got a really good guest from Australia. Yeah, you'll dig the cool accent. Brody Sharp, uh, he's a physical therapist from Australia. He works with a lot of runners, does some online um, services for people, helps a lot of people out, and we're going to talk about common misconceptions about running. Really interesting. Had a great conversation with him. Before we get started, we've got to talk about our sponsors, man. First thing, Outlaw 100. You need to check that out. Check out the Outlaw100.com, the Outlaw Race Series. Uh, Man, it's the Flat Rock Triple Crown, Lake McMurtry Run, the Flower Moon, Dark and Dirty, Thunderbird. Man, all great trail runs put on by great people. Thunderbird's November 14th. I think it's sold out. Yeah, you guys went crazy and signed up for it. Um, I think there's a waiting list, so you can still sign up and try to get in. Uh, We're going to be there hanging out. Uh, I think I'm running a 50K. That's what I signed up for, I believe. Yeah, so... Uh, yeah, it'll be cool, man. Uh, so check out the Outlaw Race Series. Hey, the main one is the Outlaw 100. Heard that sucker is tough. So I hope to, to run that at some point. But the Outlaw 100, and there's some other distances there. Um, and just, just check it all out on the website. You, you, you'll find a race that you can run around here in uh, Oklahoma or Southern Kansas. Also brought to you by T8.run. Man, you get chafe, um, you know, around your midsection when you're running. Uh, you need to buy their Commando Shards. They're guaranteed to keep you chafe-free. You go to www.t8.run, the letter T, the number 8, .run. And they got all kind of other gear, too, some Sherpa Shards, and it's gear for ultra runners by ultra runners. Uh, you want to get a little discount, use the code 50-RUNTHERIOT at checkout, and you get a discount. And last but certainly not least... Check out Pandemic Follies. Guys, we've been doing all these virtual races. Uh, This one's a little bit different. You go to modestgains.net, www.modestgains.net, and click on Pandemic Follies, and it's something different. There's a short version, a long version, and an ultra version, and they they do include running. Uh, The longest run for the, the... for the ultra version is a 50k for the short version is a 5k so you got you know different distance there but there's also crazy things like hitting a bucket of golf balls and they're you know it's 10 for the short distance and i don't know how many for the long distance i'm looking at this thing right here and i can't where oh they're nine uh no that's the burpees you got to do a lot of burp <laughs> there's also burpees there's all these cool different things that's not just running there's something to do with a kayak something to do with wearing a football helmet um, one includes a cat. Yeah, I'm going to leave it at that. You just go check it out and sign up for Pandemic Follies. And you've got to be done with these things. There are, I think there are 25 different things you've got to do, and you've got to be done with them by November 30th. So if you want to space it out, you need to do it soon. Now, this is something really cool to do with your coworkers, with a group of friends, and uh, man, something just to have fun with it. So check that out. Go to modestgains.net and click on Pandemic Follies follies well all right um as usual man please rate the podcast uh, go to itunes and or whatever you're listening to rate the podcast give us a give us a five-star rating if you really like it and put a little comment in there why you listen to the run the riot podcast and on the website uh www.runtheriot.run there's a patreon link if you want to partner with us man i love uh, you guys that have partnered with us you know man just a couple bucks here and there 
it just helps because it costs to put the website on and and as the website is growing you know i gotta open up the bandwidth a little bit and uh do we just change carriers hopefully you hopefully none of you have seen a, a hiccup in anything so um man i just love what i get to do and i thank you guys for listening all right well let's talk about running misconceptions with a guy with a cool accent from australia ladies and gentlemen brody sharp All right, on today's episode of the Run the Riot podcast, we have a man all the way from Australia. It's morning there and it's evening here. It's crazy. His name is Brody Sharp. He is the host of the Run Smarter podcast, and uh, he's also a physical therapist, so he's a busy guy. So, uh, Brody, welcome (laughs) to the Thanks, David. Thanks for having me on. Um, I'm pumped to, to cover some of our topics that we have planned. Um, yeah, I just love this stuff, so I'm excited to get underway. Well, man, you probably got a bunch of people that are listening right now that'll geek out over over some of this. You know, a bunch of ultra marathoners who, you know, any little thing that's wrong multiplied over 100 miles will crush a race or a run or anything like that. So, so we're looking forward to kind of feeding off of you. So, um, first off, man, what's uh, tell me a little bit about your podcast, the Run Smarter Podcast. Yeah, so um, I am a um, physiotherapist, physical therapist by trade, and I do niche in treating runners. I only treat runners and I do it online. And coming across runners and with my experience of treating running injuries, I come across a lot of running misconceptions and I'm constantly trying to educate uh, my clients on the, the same educational topics like the same misconceptions I try and address that aren't helping them and just like after going one runner after another just going through the same concepts over and over and over again I thought let's have a um, an avenue like a medium where I can just educate a whole bunch of runners uh, just to help them with their make smarter training decisions help them with performance reduce their risk of injury and yeah so I delve a lot into the research I do a lot of interviewing a lot of researchers myself and other health professionals and yeah, it came out, the, the podcast was just a result of it. So the it just aims just to try and help a runner have a lot of clarity. If they are injured, they have the clarity of knowing what to do. And um, yeah, then they can survive and thrive as a runner. And I think like with your history of injuries and everything, you probably agree that when you do get an injury, you try and Google things, you might ask a health professional, you might post on a Facebook group. And not only do you get a whole bunch of different advice on what to do, but you all get a whole bunch of conflicting advice. Sometimes it's stretch, don't stretch, ice, don't ice, you know, run, rest, uh, all these sort of things, which is conflicting. And then you're just stuck with not too sure what exactly to do. And yeah, so my podcast uh, is a great way to clarify and a, a lot of answers that runners have. Nice, nice. I noticed, yeah, a lot of people, uh, you know, on the trail and ultra running groups on like Facebook and, you know, people are always posting like, hey, I have this going on. And, you know, you have some people that say, like you said, all across the, you know, run yep. through it or rub some dirt on it or you know, go to the doctor. Change yeah. your shoes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, all over the place. Um, so so it's good that, you know, it's good to listen to people who are actually you know, trained, you know, and, and, and know, know about these things. And so, so, um, how did you end up falling into just, did you, did, was that something specific? Did you just like running or did you just kind of fall into, you realize you were treating a lot of runners and kind of like the mechanics of it and everything? Yeah. So it was, 
about two years into my physio career, like when I first graduated, I went into private practice and I was just treating anyone who would walk in the door. Yeah. Um, and it was only two years into my career that I became a runner myself. Like prior to that, I was playing basketball. That was my, my sport growing up until my early 20s. And then when I became a runner myself, I started seeing a huge like passion in myself. As soon as a runner would come in the door, I'd want to talk about their shoes. I'd want to talk about their cadence. I want to talk about what races they were, um, they were striving for. But I had this added passion to get them back to running, getting back to pain-free running. And I just recognized that I'd be buzzing like within myself and I'd want to spend more time around this population because not only did I get really good outcomes, but it brought out the better physio in me. Like it, mm. I was striving just to find the answers and try and my best to get these people back and recognize that, recognize it brought out my better self. So I wanted to spend more time around that population. So I decided to niche down and um, yeah, just treat runners. Nice, nice. Well, and, and being a runner yourself and, you know, and everybody listening, you know, when you get injured and, and, and you can't run or you can't run optimally like you want, man, it's, it's, it's tough. You know, it kind of just like a part of you amputated, yeah. you know? Yeah. I share the same frustrations that any other injured runner would have because I've been through it all myself. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's hard to, you know, well, we, we learn through pushing ourselves and, 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 we find our, our limits, you know, find out yeah. when, when is when is too far. Now, before we get into the, the specifics on a, on a lot of these things that that uh, that that you you're debunking um, real quick, what's the um, what's the running um, culture like? And I mean, is there is there in Australia? I mean, I don't even know. I know that Australia just ultra marathon wise, they just introduced a 200 mile race. Uh, are there a lot of races, you know, out there? Uh, there are plenty of races, definitely. I think we we don't do like much around the ultra scene as I guess they do in the states. Um, yeah. I'm not much of an ultra. Well, I'm not an ultra runner. I'll say that off the okay. yeah <laughs> from the from the bat. But um, I I tend to come across more of the the longer trails and the um, the ultras more around the North America side of things. We do have a lot of races here though. Like running is very very popular. We do have major marathons in our key cities. We do have I participate in a lot of trail runs around our state um, nice. on a yearly basis. And yeah, there, there's plenty. There's almost a run um, every other weekend around our state. And yeah, it's just becoming more and more popular. Well. Uh, first thing that comes to mind this is the this is the american american in me but uh i know out there in nature um it seems like everything in australia in nature is trying to kill you so i don't know tra <laughs> trail, trail runs might be interesting out there i guess i don't know <laughs> yeah we're, we're not necessarily in the outback we do encounter okay. um some nice wildlife and i don't know too many people who have been bitten by snakes or anything but okay right. um yeah I do like to say, I do like to joke around and say when you arrive to Australia, like from, you have to get off the airplane and there's like a mad rush from the airplane to the, into the airport and you have to dodge a whole bunch of snakes and crocodiles and <laughs> nice. spiders in order. And if you don't survive, then you're not, you shouldn't cut out to be in Australia. And if you, if you survive, then hey, welcome. That's awesome. That's good. Uh, well, uh, of course, like I say, being an American, I had to get out of the way. But um, so you, 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 when when we uh, email back and forth, you talked about a lot of the misconceptions, and these are things that you know that I've heard and that I've dealt with, and that I still deal with with people. And so um, let's let's just go down the list, and I want you to speak to some of these things, and um, I'm sure we'll have a lot more to branch off fr from that. But so the the first one, a lot of people say. 
uh, man, you're running. It's so bad on your knees. You're going to have arthritis when you get older. You're going to destroy your knees. So what, what, what do you say to people that, that deal with that? Uh, I start by saying it's untrue, 100% untrue. And uh, I don't blame them either because they've been told by doctors or on ads or like surgeons. And this is like 30 years old, we once believed, like 30 years ago, we once believed this, but there's evidence for a long time now that that's just not the case. And yeah, like I said, we can't blame runners because a doctor has told them like you're running, running's bad for your knees. It's going, it's like wear and tear. It's going to eventually catch up with you because it's pounding the pavement thousands, hundreds, thousands, millions of times over your career. Um, it's eventually going to wear out. It's eventually going to break down and you're eventually going to get osteoarthritis. And that's what they believe to be true. And they have this ingrained fear. And that's when a lot of people like if, if on the odd occasion a runner might get knee pain, they're like, yeah, it's because running's bad for your knees. But we do know that with the, the research that's come out, it's totally untrue. And I often share a study that was done to um, a population was 125,000 people. They did this meta-analysis where they gathered a whole bunch of available research that was already conducted. They compile it all together. They get the population of uh, like the prevalence of osteoarthritis within given populations. And to compile it all and put it down to a couple of sentences, though the population of sedentary people, so those who aren't runners, those who aren't fit and active, mm -hmm. the likelihood of them getting knee osteoarthritis was 10%, just a bit above 10%. Then you look at recreational runners and see what the prevalence of osteoarthritis is for them. And this is the same age, the same, like every other baseline characteristic is exactly the same. Their prevalence of osteoarthritis is 3.5%. Nice. So, on, when it comes to the research, you're three times more likely to get osteoarthritis if you're not a runner compared to if you are a runner. And that might be, um, that's a little bit different for, because in that same study, they looked at elite athletes, like elite runners, and their prevalence of osteoarthritis is around 12%. And oh, wow. They considered elite athletes as someone who was either paid for a runner or if you represented your country so very very top tier so yeah. they're probably working at too high of a mileage in order um when it comes to build up breakdown kind of equation they've probably exceeded a little bit but this is what we know about osteoarthritis if you think that it's wear and tear if you think that it's breaking down then you would think that running's bad for your knees but what research shows is that optimal loading and that ground reaction force of pounding the pavement when you do run actually stimulates bone growth and actually stimulates cartilage growth and if uh just by the natural like because the body gets older the body wears down yeah. naturally with any um any joint but running might actually slow down that process and slow down that breakdown process because you're building up strength you're stimulating that cartilage growth you're stimulating that bone growth and that's why we see such a low prevalence in runners but if we go back to those elite athletes they're probably doing a little bit too much or like way too much and yeah. so their prevalence is almost on par with the sedentary type of population so um often a big misconception that i constantly have to explain to my audience and my other runners that think that is to be true and the same topic, like if they do have osteoarthritis and they do have pain in their knees because of osteoarthritis, there's been a lot of studies to show that if you continue to run at levels at um, 
levels of loading that don't flare up your symptoms, it actually does help. And running with osteoarthritis doesn't further progress. It won't like make the the symptoms worse as long as you are sensible and as long as you pay attention to symptoms and um, you maintain a lot of strength. So um, that's what I'd, uh, I'd, that'd be my summary. No, that's, that's awesome. And, and what I would say about the elite athletes, you know, maybe just a a little bit more than a sedentary person, but man, they got to be elite athletes, you know, (laughs) you know, you know, what's the, you know, that's a small price to pay to, for, you know, for, for what they get to do and something, you know, we all love. Um, so for somebody like me, like I started, uh, I had, uh, I tore my uh, ACL in my right knee, um, doing jujitsu. And that's, that's actually how I started running. I had ACL reconstruction and went through rehab and I wanted a goal to rehab my knee. And so I, I just, I said, I'm going to run a marathon in a year. And I'd never run even a 5k. Uh, I was, it was in shape and I had done some running, but I'd never run a race. And so I trained, I did rehab and I started running and I fell in love with it. Um, and so, um, you know, since then I, I, I did more marathons and did, did hundred miles, you know, started doing ultra marathons. And then I, 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 tore my ACL again, jumping on a trampoline, uh, in 2015, but that this time it wasn't a clean break. I dinged the cartilage, uh, tore meniscus. I did, I did a number on it. So, but I, 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 you know, I, I considered, man, maybe my career running career might be over, but you know, I'm still able to run and I, I do feel it sometime, but I'm still running 100 miles, 200 miles, you know, still still doing it. And so uh, I once had a, a doctor told me kind of the same thing, like, just don't stop because <laughs> the, the arthritis will build up or something. And you've got a good uh, doctor. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. There you go. This is yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't seen them in a while. But anyway, yeah. And so, you know, and I can tell when I don't, you know, I, I'm on a doing a run streak now, but I can tell when I'm not running. Uh, I, I do. I thrive with decent volume, you know? Yeah. Can I just add in there as well? Because um, not a lot of runners have tore their ACL. It's not a, it's not very common. Um, it's more in those cutting kind of change direction team sports. Mm-hmm. But um, there is a link for those who do have ACL um, damage to go on and develop osteoarthritis. But um, there is like a, a, a link there. But exactly what you were saying, we want to try and maintain as much um, strength and as much endurance as we can. And your knees might be a little bit of a weak link compared to your ankles or compared to your hips or your back. Like you might just be dealing with that because of the prior history. Mm -hmm. But as long as you pay attention to your mileage and you pay attention to there's not sudden spikes in load, because I would assume if you have a sudden spike in load, the knees would be the first to um, produce symptoms rather than like anywhere else in the body. Yeah. And you've done the right thing in terms of maintaining a high mileage because you've maintained a lot of strength. You've maintained a lot of tolerance in all of those joints, but where people go wrong is they might have a spike in training load and the knees flare up and they interpret that as, Oh, running might be bad for me. Um, let me just back off the running and let me just only do, um, say, you know, 15 mile runs instead of a hundred mile runs. And what you do when you make that decision is all those structures then become weaker because instead of doing hundred mile runs, you're now doing only 15 mile and that tolerance and that general load diminishes. And then you might have another spike in training load, like a couple months down the track. 
and you think, oh, maybe 15 miles is too much for me. Let me go back to five miles. Maybe that's all I can tolerate. And then it becomes weaker again because you're now only doing a really low mileage compared to what you used to do Mm. when in fact what you should be doing is identifying that spike in load managing the the flare up with some strength and conditioning and then slowly building back up to that mileage that you were once operating and thriving at because then yeah. you're just maintaining that that um build up but if someone doesn't have that education of what i was just explaining they can really peter down and really get into this downward spiral where they're then only just walking for you know a couple of hours or only just running for like a mile or two and symptoms are flaring up because they've had a couple of years of just deconditioning themselves to the point where they can't tolerate anything. Oh, that's good. So so as much as you can you can don't stop. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Avoid yeah. spikes in mileage and if there is like any any spike or any like <laughs> insidious kind of flare-up make sure you're not interpreting it as running's bad and you yeah you're taking the right the smarter steps along the way yeah so um one of the things that got me really interested in in running when i was down with my knee surgery i read the book born to run and so i'm sure you've heard a lot of runners a lot of people were inspired inspired by that book and so when i started running and i think this is a this is a good thing it ended up having a, a little negative, but I, I started running with the uh, Vibram five finger shoes. And so I was coming out of low mileage, you know, rehabbing myself. So I was, I, you know, I had a long buildup, you know, from when my knee was weak. And so, but, but my running form changed from when I would run for just cardio before, you know, I was, I turned myself into more of a four foot strike and I ran my first marathon in Vibram five finger shoes and, you know, uh, didn't have any, any issues. Now, later on, when I was really trying to compete and run a fast half marathon, I, I'm pretty sure I had a stress fracture in uh, in my ankle from from doing it. I still PR'd the half marathon, but I couldn't run for a while after. <laughs> but um, how much of, of, of do people what people deal with, like runners that you have coming in are maybe just they need to tweak their form a little bit, you know, and instead of like, uh, you know, there's a whole thing on heel striking versus midfoot striking. And um, is what do you uh, how do you see that? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> let's start with the the born to run philosophy of like, you know, minimalist footwear, barefoot running. Um, yeah four foot transition, all that kind of stuff. Let, let uh, me just say so, that I wear shoes now. <laughs> so, okay. Okay. Gonna, okay, okay. Yeah. Um, the, let's start off by saying there's, in terms of reducing your risk of injury, there's no one type of shoe that you can transition to, to reduce your risk of injury. Um, unless we have a really detailed, um, we go into detail about your history and your past history of like running injuries. And then we tailor a shoe to you, but there's no blanket statement that one, like that runners should be favoring a type of shoe over another. Um, there's just no link when it comes to reducing your risk of injury. So traditional shoes or like hocker shoes, minimalist shoes, those sort of things. Um, the person will adapt to that type of shoe, which it seems like you sort of adapted when you were first building up to those five finger shoes. Um, what we should say is that if you try to go towards the the more barefoot spectrum, so shoes are all on a spectrum. There's like the maximalist, which are the hocker kind of shoes, yeah. and then there's the the min, the minimalist side of the spectrum, which is your barefoot type of shoes. If you transition towards the barefoot side of the spectrum, you're going to be putting a considerable amount of load through your calf, through your Achilles, pretty much everything below the knee, mm-hmm. the foot, the the foot bones, um, everything like the load significantly goes up. But in contrast, the the loads on the hip and the knee go down. So you're not 
you're not the overall load doesn't diminish it just shifts around the to different body parts okay. and so if someone had a, a history of knee pain and they're constantly getting these flare-ups of knee pain if we slowly transition them to more of a minimalist shoe and we transition them to to more of a four-foot strike um the loads of those knees are going to drop considerably sometimes up to 20 percent. that's what the research shows wow but it's going to shift all the way down to your calf your your achilles your foot if that transition is too drastic and if we change it too quickly too much uh, too acute for the body to adapt you're going to develop like plantar fasciitis um foot stress fractures achilles tendinopathy calf strains um the likelihood of that injury significantly goes up because it's too much of a transition. Yeah. But for runners, like if they come to me and they say, um, what shoe should I favor? I say, okay, um, have you had a, have you had previous history of injuries? Are you currently injured or have you been dealing with an injury for several years? I'll consider that. And the next question I'll ask is, do you want to increase performance? If they want to increase performance, that's another bit of information that I'll take on board. Most recreational runners or some recreational runners who just love running and just want to get out there, they don't really want to push themselves. I'll just say whatever shoe they're currently in will be best for them. If they want to increase performance, I would say tend to go slowly transition to a lighter shoe because lighter shoes are shown to increase running performance and help with running economy. And then if they're injured, then I'd make the decision based on the individual based on their individual history, I'll make my recommendations on what shoe we should transition to. Because on the opposite side, if someone has a history of plantar fasciitis or Achilles issues or foot stress fractures, I'd yeah. want to slowly transition more to the maximal side or more towards a traditional type of shoe, uh, which does offload the calf a little bit and the foot and ankle, but then puts a little bit more load up higher towards the knee and hip, which they might thrive on. Gotcha. What I tell, and, and it, you, it's funny, you talked about people making a quick transition. So I, I wear, I wear ultra shoes, they're zero drop, but I still get the padding, but I can four foot strike and I got a little, you know, I have a little protection. And, um, but there's so many people that when they try to change their, change how they run, they look at pose running or, um, or chi running kind of, you know, that, that same mindset. And you tell them, look, you got to do it slow, run regular and do, you know, a little bit here. And, they'll come back limping the next day or something and, you know, they, they, they just try to go all out with it. You know, everybody thinks they're invincible and they end up with, um, uh, sore calves or, or strained calves, or, or like you said, issues with Achilles and things like that. But it, um, there's wisdom in, in make, if you're going to make a transition for whatever reason to do it, do it slowly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If there's one thing you can take away and it's one thing that I always get across to my listeners on my podcast is the principle of adaptation. Mm-hmm. You want to make sure everyone knows like if your listeners are high mileage type of people you know that you need to have patience you know that you need to slowly build up you can't just do it overnight uh, because as soon as you have spikes in load there's going to be an increased risk of injury because you're exceeding the body's capacity to adapt and if you do it so in gradual steps the body adapts along the way the body gets stronger is able to tolerate more load along the way and you get stronger and stronger and stronger however people can people can understand like a spike in speed or a spike in terrain, like all of a sudden they go from flats doing a whole bunch of hills or distance or overall weekly mileage. These are numbers that people can pay attention to. Yeah. But where they sometimes a drastic change they don't identify would be like a drastic change in shoes or like a drastic change in um, stride, like they've gone from a heel strike to a four-foot strike. These significantly boost your risk of injury if you 
do it too quickly. And I did have a client a couple of months ago who um, developed calf issues and I was trying to delve into his history of running prior to him getting this injury because I was looking for a spike in training or yeah. uh, under recovery and couldn't find anything. And then it was like halfway through the consult. He's like, what do you think of forefoot running? And I'm like, oh, why? And he <laughs> yeah. said, oh, I, I heard it's good. And so the last couple of weeks I've tried running on my toes. And then it all just made sense. It all there just fell in place. And it's because he didn't transition enough. He's just gone straight from a heel strike to doing all of his mileage, just trying to run on his toes. And his calves, the load through the calves is shot through the roof and then he develops all these calf issues. Yeah, there you go. There you go. And I've, I've seen that happen a lot of times too. So uh, well, and, and I like what you said, adaptation, everything we do in running in training is, is adapting, you know, um, you know, adapt, yeah. uh, trying to increase speed, increase, uh, mileage, you know, and, and all that. So we gotta, we gotta do it wisely. You um, had that episode, you had that episode on adapt and overcome. I saw that and, um, I had to listen to that yesterday. So we're, we're pretty much like on the same boat here. And I will say, because you did touch on, um, running technique as well like heel strike forefoot strike um with the pose running and the chi running and all that kind of thing there is an evidence to show that it reduces your risk of injury but what it's doing for a lot of cases is it's um for those runners who overstride it's lessening their overstride mm-hmm. um so that's also a good thing because we don't want to um we want to minimize breaking forces as much as we can and those who are the type of runner that when they first make contact with the ground if it's in front of the body considerably, we want to reduce that. So we wanted to get the contact a little bit closer to underneath the body. Um, that's that's probably the one correction I would make. A lot of runners don't overreach, but yeah. if you are, that's definitely a big correction that I would make. It doesn't depend on if – it doesn't matter if you contact with the heel or the midfoot or the forefoot. What matters is how far in front of the body it is, and we want to get that underneath the body as much as we can. I got you. Is it is it um is it more because of the the muscles extended when when the heel hits, or is it more uh, because of the impact is 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 more significant when it when you hit out in front of you? It's impact, but it's also if you consider that impact being a breaking force, and we want to move okay. forward. Yeah. And as soon as you move, as soon as you contact in front of your body. You've got a center of mass. You've got a center of gravity. As soon as you contact in front of that, that creates a breaking force. And how far in front of the body that is, that is a greater breaking force. And it's just like a counterproductive way. And the muscles and the joints and the ligaments are going to encounter that breaking force as you try and get up over that um, that foot, which isn't helpful. It's not efficient and it's not helpful. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. Counter, counter. It goes against what we're trying to do. <laughs> Move forward. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. All right. So, um, all right. Enough. I guess enough about the, the about that part. Let's let's talk about because this one's interesting. This this people their ears are going to pop up. Stretching helps lower risk of injury and increase performance and recovery. Um, you know that I, I would people say a whole lot of people say stretch. Some say you don't need to stretch. Some say stretch stretch before you run. Some say stretch after you run. What what do you think? Yeah, um, I can back this up with like a whole bunch of science because there's a lot of literature around this. And my overall statement, which I'll clarify in a second, okay. so s- stretching, particularly static stretching, does nothing to reduce your risk of injury as a recreational runner. It does nothing to increase your running performance and it does nothing to aid your recovery. So oh, wow. that's like that's big, that's man. The, that's big. <laughs> yeah, that's what the science shows and that's okay. what the research yeah. shows for gotcha. recreational runners. If you're a sprinter or if you're an athlete that puts yourself to end a range, if you're a dancer or if you're a gymnast or something like that, you will 
it potentially might benefit from some stretching because you're working at end of range. Runners don't work at end of range. And what I recommend for runners, I, I never say don't stretch. I say if stretching works for you, then do your stretching. And this is my one recommendation is try running. If you're going for your um, your weekend long run and it's not intense, it's like, you know, you're just going at a, a comfortable pace. Try not stretching. Then another time, try stretching a little bit. Another time, try stretching a lot. See what you feel better with. See see what makes you feel better, and then you do that routine. Um, and that's going to be based on your individual preferences and what feels better for you. But you can't convince yourself that stretching is reducing your risk of injury, and you can't convince yourself that stretching is helping your running performance because the the evidence just doesn't show that. And why I um, why I try and really get this message across to people is because when runners do get injured, they think it's because they don't stretch enough. Mm. And I often talk to runners, I talk to them on social media, they reach out to me and we talk about running injuries and they say, yeah, I'm injured, but it's because I don't stretch enough. And we know that's not true. We know you don't get injured because you're stiff or that kind of thing. So if you believe that you're getting injured because you don't stretch, that's taking the attention and the focus away from something that might be causing the injury, mm. which might be some errors in training, which might be lack of recovery, which might be poor quality sleep, that we're just totally dismissing the real reason why you're getting injured, which is often really, really unhelpful because you think that running is uh, – because stretching is causing that injury. So that's where that's where I arc up a little bit, and that's why I want to get this message across. I'm not bad-mouthing stretching, but right. – if it's taking attention away from something that might be causing your injury, that's where it's high on the priority list, and that's why we need to get the message across. Would you uh, have a preference, uh, like if somebody, uh, or is there more of a benefit maybe uh, to uh, dynamic stretching rather than static stretching? Maybe. Um, there's no research. Like if if you had a health professional that was well aware of the evidence, they would suggest dynamic stretching over static stretching. Like they okay. would. If you were to do one or the other, we would yeah. say do dynamic stretching because we right. want to prepare the body for what it's about to do. That's what we do with a warm-up. That's what, yeah. why we spend time warming up. We want to prepare the body for the demands and for the, the elements that we want to prepare it for. Um, that's why it would be different if someone was a sprinter or if someone was doing hurdles or if someone was playing basketball. We might we might do a different warm-up. But for recreational right. runners, for ultra-athletes, um, we want we don't push ourselves through greater range of motion if we wanted if we were going to do an intense hill session then we would prioritize our warm-up being around a jog then a faster jog then maybe doing some bounding exercises or maybe doing some small like hill repeats before we actually get into our event because we're preparing the body for what it's about to do and yeah that's where um that's what makes sense for me and if we needed to um do some hills where we're putting our hips through different ranges of motion that's where dynamic stretching might be um advantageous yeah well uh the ultra runners listening um most of them i know don't stretch a whole lot so they're like yes yeah fair <laughs> Amen. enough if it feels good for you then go for it go for it there you go all right well um so uh, the, the the next thing that, that I want to talk about next mis- misconception, for, especially for runners, because and and I'm I'm the opposite of this. I, I I'm I'm gonna side with you on this, but some people say to in, to improve in endurance events, I shouldn't lift heavy weights. So yeah. I like the yeah. gym. I like to go to the gym and do stuff. So what what are your what are your thoughts on that? And what what kind of, what does research show? 
Yeah. So um, this is like this is a lot. A lot of times with these misconceptions, they kind of make sense intuitively. Like stretching would make sense intuitively. Um, like running is bad for your knees makes sense intuitively. These sort of things. And strength training is the same because for the endurance population, you want to. It makes sense to continue to train your muscles for endurance and for to run like running is an endurance sport let's continue running you're getting this specificity and you're training your body for what it's capable of doing and then if they get to the gym they want to prioritize the endurance side of things so they want to do body weight calf raises they want to do body weight lunges or squats but do high reps so they do like three reps of like 20 25 30 like those that real high rep range because it's training the endurance mm. however <laughs> there is um a lot of research to show that a runner will favor a, a, an endurance runner will increase their running performance and boost their running economy if they strengthen if they're in the gym and they do a low rep range and train for strength so we're looking at rep ranges around 8 to 12 so you should be really maxing out at around about that 12 rep range. Yeah. Um, this is where the evidence shows. And there's there's actually a, a paper published like about four weeks ago, so really, really recent, and they did a really, really well-designed study where they gathered a whole bunch of endurance runners, put them into three groups, put them into the gym. Everyone maintains the same mileage. One of them did um, endurance strengthening exercises. One of them did slow and heavy uh, strength exercises. One of them did the same slow and heavy exercises, but also incorporated some plyometric exercises. Um, and all of the loads were exactly the same, like the time under tension, exactly the same. They boosted the endurance um, time a little bit more because they they needed less recovery, but yeah. really, really well designed. And they showed that when it comes to improving your endurance, I think it was around about half marathon, marathon distance, the heavy strength, so group two and group three, the heavy strength plus plyometrics improved their running economy and improved their endurance um, endurance performance, whereas the ones who did the bodyweight exercises did not. And mm. this supports a ton of evidence over years and years and years to show that runners will benefit, their running economy will benefit if you do heavy strength work. Do you think, um, is, is it, um, and, and you might not know, but like, the, is it just because of the adaptations that the strength of the muscle or, or does it, I mean, uh, what, what, what's the difference? I mean, what's the change there? I guess, I guess the strength of the muscle, it can absorb more or. Yeah. Um, there is a book called strength training for endurance runners by, um, Rich Blagrove is the author. And I interviewed, I interviewed him. He went into the physiology of it, which, okay. um, escapes my mind right now but what what i can say is that it helps the efficiency it helps the oxygen efficiency of the body to or the muscles to utilize oxygen as well okay. like it taps into another it taps into another component of the body to work efficiently because yeah. if you're an endurance athlete you've got the endurance side ticked off like you've you've tipped that bucket but we also have the strength component and we also have the power component we have these buckets that every runner needs to have filled up in order to be totally resilient in order to power your way up hills in order way to to get those like kind of mid-race surges or that that sprint finish at the end um but also just that operating running economy so if you're just going at a steady pace the running economy is what really determines your 
endurance performance because you're utilizing oxygen better. Um, you're more efficient at utilizing that oxygen so that you can be like running beside a, a, a runner and they're working harder because their oxygen efficiency is less. But if you're opt- if you're working at a more economical, more oxygen efficient state, you can either work at the same level of intensity as them, but run faster, or you can work at the same pace, but feel a lot easier. And yeah. like I said, the endurance bucket is ticked. So why would, when you're in the gym, when you're doing all that, um, when you have the opportunity to do something different, why would you do the endurance component? Why would you try and fill up that already full endurance bucket? You might as well spend your time addressing all those other components that um, you're not addressing while you're running in order to get those gains and get that efficiency. Nice. Good. So I'm going to keep going to the gym. <laughs> I like good, it. Good. And I will say as well, because I do encourage runners to lift heavy, like that should be the thing. But if you're jumping into the gym, if you haven't done it before, you haven't done a squat or a lunge, you're not familiar with technique, don't go heavy. Start with body weight, but yeah. the overall goal should be to slowly build up safely with the right technique. Like we said before, it's all about adaptation. We don't want to go straight into the gym and really load yourself up because that's when you're going to get injured. Just make these safe steps these safe incremental steps but the goal should be to build up towards that heavier side of things what um um for for a runner who who you know we spend a lot of times training and running what would be your you said squats and lunges um what what would be your top maybe i don't know few um exercises for them to work toward so that's the thing it can be simplistic it can be like really complicated and somewhere in between this is where it becomes a science and also an art because they're like anything that works what we call triple extension is a really really nice one so if you look at the running action the hips extend they the hips are brought behind you but at the same time the leg straightens out so that's knee extension and at the same time when you push off with your ankle you're also getting this plantar flexion so you're getting this triple extension component so hip knee and ankle are all extending at once for you to propel forward yeah so any exercise that encourages those yeah can be quite nice um so if you're looking at anything like jumping like squats like skipping like all of these things that can address uh any of those extensions but in saying that i do like squats squats are really nice i do like deadlifts deadlifts are also nice lunges yeah. are good um bridges um like hip extensions i really like a split squat so like a bulgarian split squat where you put your it's like a lunge position but your back foot is up on a a chair or up on a bench or something and you're doing that up and down motion that's really really nice for runners um yeah can be complicated can be really simplistic but try and make sure you're working the calves at some point Try and make sure you're working the the knees with some variation of squats. Uh, you're working the hamstrings and glutes. And, yeah, as long as you're addressing those, we're all good. Awesome. Awesome. Good deal. Um, all right. So uh, one of them, one of the uh, we talked about here, uh, somebody says, I'm injured because I have flat feet. Are there a lot of people come to you with flat feet? <laughs> Um, not a lot of people come to me with flat feet, but I, I don't think flat feet are that common. Yeah. But they get told it all the time. Like they go to a podiatrist, they go to a physical therapist, they go to a doctor. And again, it makes intuitive sense. If you have flat feet, that looks like a a hilariously inefficient way of running if you're collapsing your feet while you're running. And no wonder why you're injured. But all like a lot of runners get injured. And as soon as a runner gets injured, they'll they'll look at the runner and then pick out a a flaw, what appears to be a flaw and say, that's why you're injured. Mm -hmm. But 
again, there's tons of research to look at runners, look at their foot shape, look at their um, their style of running, observe them, and they all get injured at the same rate. Like runners always get injured, <laughs> yeah. but they all seem to get injured at the same rate. Yeah. And there's no correlation between um, like strength, weakness, stiffness. There's no um, correlation with foot type. Um, hmm. So this can be a really nice thing for people to hear because the belief that people create does hinder people's performance moving forward. And if they believe that they're constantly collapsing their foot, which collapses the knee, which drops the hip, no wonder they're constantly getting injured because they're fearing that they're going to get injured because they're mechanically flawed and that they think that they're falling to pieces. Um, but there's some really nice like evidence to show that there's um, I can point to one particular paper that followed like a couple of thousands of runners. They looked at their foot shape. They looked at like whether they were over pronator, pronator, neutral, supinated, over supinated. So these five categories, yeah. they all gave them a neutral shoe and then they just went them out to do the same mileage and saw when people would start getting injured. And in fact, the pronators got injured less than like the neutral <laughs> or the supinated. And so, doesn't make any sense does it but yeah. if we base ourselves on current levels of understanding when it comes to we're either overtraining or under recovering this is why people are getting injured yeah. it makes sense that it wouldn't correlate to foot shape it wouldn't correlate to flexibility it wouldn't correlate to a whole bunch of things that the current literature is showing huh. so that being said what are your your thoughts because uh i've had people people in my family that have gone to, to a podiatrist or going to a doctor or something and spend $500 on orthotics or shoe inserts or things like that. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I say marketing's done a really good job of convincing people otherwise. And it's the same with shoes. And <laughs> like whenever there's um, a product to be sold, like marketing has a big point, a big place to play in that. And everyone's seen the the footage or, or like the the billboard of a foot collapsing in and the the Achilles like bowing in because the foot's collapsing in and then that side by side comparison of now that foot has an orthotic underneath it and everything's magically aligned and everything's fallen into place and you're going to be a better runner because of it. That just makes sense and the marketing is really, really nice. Um, it makes sense if you're being told that like this is going to boost up that that arch and it's going to magically align everything. You're going to be running better. And if you believe that to be true, then symptoms are going to alleviate and you're going to feel better because of this lovely placebo effect. <laughs> yeah. But in saying that some people really thrive on orthotics. We don't know why we don't, we don't know why, but we could get the same type of person with the same pronated foot and we put them in orthotics and they, they're considerably worse. And huh. so there's a blanket statement for orthotics and I didn't come up with this, like world-leading podiatrists come up with this. And it is that orthotics work well for some people some of the time, but never for everyone all of the time. And we we literally have to trial and error. We literally have to put someone in an orthotic, see how they move as an individual, see how their symptoms go as an individual, and then base our decision on that. Because some, like we look at pronation, some people, if some people pronate a considerable amount and we put them in on orthotic sometimes they pronate even more with the orthotic and that doesn't make sense whatsoever yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> makes no no sense but this is what the science shows and some people favor really like a lot to it so with your family and friends what and what i do as a, a physical therapist if someone has plantar fasciitis or if someone has collapsing feet and they're worried and 
doing all this sort of thing, I would put them in orthotic. Well, I would tape up their foot or put them in a really inexpensive orthotic and see how they go. If they're yeah. finding themselves like thriving and feeling really, really nice, then keep the orthotic. Like make sure that we're not straight away running in them. Make sure we're slowly adapting to them. But I like to have the philosophy of if you're, let's say they have plantar fasciitis and their symptoms are alleviated when they wear orthotics, I would educate them to make sure that this is only a short-term uh, thing. This is only a short-term intervention because what we need to do is start strengthening you, strengthening you up because the orthotic is actually doing a lot of the work. It's doing a lot of the load through the, the foot and the, the plantar fascia complex because if you just rely on that orthotic, you're going to get weaker. The foot yeah. is going to become weaker. And then they start becoming more and more reliant on the orthotic. Like once they only used to wear their orthotic for running because that used to flare up their symptoms. Then when they would spend long days on their feet, foot would get sore. So then they put in the orthotic. Then they start to go, when they were walking the dog, their foot was getting sore. So then they wore the orthotic. Now, every time they don't wear the orthotic, their foot flares up. And what you're seeing is this downward spiral. I educate people about this pain, rest, weakness, downward spiral, where the, the structures is becoming weaker and weaker and weaker. You're tolerating less and less and less, and then you're countering that with more and more support. And so it's often unhelpful. It's very rarely a long-term solution. So orthotics, short-term solution, just to settle down symptoms. Fantastic. Your symptoms are settled. Let's uh, do some strength exercises to boost up that tolerance, and then we wean off that orthotic so that you can tolerate more and more loads, and then you're thriving again. And your weak link has now become a strong link. So um, that's my recommendation. Gotcha. Gotcha. Good, good, good. So you, you said a while ago about, about rest. And so, um, you know, uh, a lot of people were, you get an injury and, you know, the old school, you know, rest was the, the big thing. And, and what we're, what I've seen and what I've experienced is that that's not necessarily the best thing to do when you get an injury. So, uh, speak to that. I, I know it depends on the injury and the severity and everything else, but, but by and large, I, I think for me anyway, um, training through s- with uh, being smart, um, I-, I recover a lot faster if I continue to move. Yeah, yeah. And I'd say the only exception to this rule would be like stress fractures. Like we really mm-hmm. want to offload a stress fracture straight away. But that always the stress fracture always seems to be the exception to the rule with a lot yeah. of these cases, <laughs> yeah. which yeah. is unfortunate that that exists. But I often educate this. Like I say, when it comes to runners. Everyone wants to deal with um, reducing, like, risk of injury. They want injury prevention. That's, like, their constant thing, injury prevention, injury prevention. I say we can make smart, really smart training decisions to considerably lower your risk of injury with a lot of the stuff that we've learned today. But it's we can't get that to zero. There's always going to be some nickels that do arise. There might be some injuries that do arise. It's almost unavoidable because it's so multifactorial. However... Um, the goal of this episode and the goal of my podcast is to make sure that once symptoms do arise, because sometimes they are un- unavoidable, you make smart decisions in the first couple of days so that it turns into a, a five-day injury instead of a five-week injury, instead of a five-month injury. And I have seen injuries go for five years. And <laughs> that's because they're making incorrect decisions in the early days because they're just not sure what to do. And back to this point around rest, rest is um, – uh, active contributor to this because if someone does get injured because of a flare-up, let's say they've had a spike in mileage and their knees flared up, um, whatever particular diagnosis it might be, 
they try and treat that with complete rest because they think it needs time to heal. The body will naturally heal. So let me just rest it and let me go back to my running next weekend and we'll see how it goes. What you're doing once you've overloaded that structure is those tissues are quite sensitized. They become quite irritable and they become temporarily weaker because they can't withstand the same load in this sensitized state. Mm. So they're temporarily weaker. What you do, if you combat that with a week of complete rest, you're further contributing to the weakness. Mm. And then no surprise that when you go back to running, that injury is still there, it flares up again. And you're like, oh, I just might need another another week to recover. Maybe I need another two weeks to recover because, you know, at first one week was, was no good. So again, it's flared up. It becomes more sensitized. It becomes weaker temporarily. Then you have two weeks of complete rest, further weakening the structure. <laughs> and there's this, what I call the pain rest weakness downward spiral where you just spiral down, down, down. So it becomes more and more sensitized. The tissues become weaker and weaker, weaker. Then you experience more and more pain and it's a real trap that you get in. And this is where it comes to make smarter, smarter decisions day one, day two, day three. If you've had a spike in um, training and you've flared up the knee, it might be good to take a day or two off just to settle things down. But day three, day two or day three, you're definitely doing either some squats or some lunges, maybe going for a light jog just to see how things go. Maybe you swap out for the bike or you just keep active, which is why I really like that um, that adaptation. Um, what was it? Adapt to overcome that episode that you did where you were injured, but then you're keeping yourself busy with other things that you were doing. You're constantly staying active. Um, and we want to make sure that we're not constantly flaring up the injury because runners often interpret what I'm saying is like, oh, he says I should just run through my injury. And they <laughs> yeah. constantly just flare it up and flare it up because they're overdoing it. No, we need to temporarily back it off. We still stay active. And it would depend on the injury, depend on the level of severity, which is why you need the advice because it might be we need to take some time off running and do some cycling or do some strength training or do something. Or it might be that we can still run, but we avoid speed, we avoid hills, we avoid minimalist footwear, we um, we make these smart decisions based on the type of injury, but we're still staying active, you're still maintaining your fitness, you're still getting out in nature, getting in some fresh air so you feel good, you feel better about yourself, yeah. which are often really ticking points for optimal recovery and a fast recovery. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and that's you talked about just it just mentally you know when we're laid up it's it's hard and when when i had my knee surgeries i was i was crutching myself into the gym because i needed to do something you know and yeah. I, I think that helped you know getting the blood flow the endorphins everything else um it's good you know 100 <laughs> percent. and it's so like it's so often the case of why runners don't seek treatment because they think they're going to get told that they can't run Therefore, they continue to run on that injury because they're scared that they're going to lose the fitness that they've worked so hard and so long into building. Um, so that's the case. Like if you um, – yeah, it's, it's often the case to stay active, keep that structure strong, um, stay active, pull the fitness in any way that we can that doesn't flare up symptoms, and then you're back sooner. All right. So, so I mean, these are uh, – I those are the top ones that um, – you know, that, that we talked about, uh, what are, are there any other huge misconceptions, you know, that, that runners, uh, deal with, or, or, or what's the most common injury you deal with runners? Is there anything in particular? Like if you just had to make a blanket statement to everybody listening right now, you know, um, we, which you dropped a lot of awesome knowledge bombs there with, you know, um, but, but, but what would you say? I mean, what, 
Um, should I start with like the type of injuries I currently see, or yeah, like the yeah, most what common are, injuries? Yeah, what are you seeing? So when it comes to like runners in general, the most mm-hmm. common area is the knee. Um, yeah. So th- it's an unfortunate um, joint because it's influenced by what the the ankle does and what the hip does, and it's kind of just like this joint in between that sort of suffers all the higher higher magnitudes of load because of what those other two are doing. So um, it makes total sense that the knee is what we commonly see. But because I do online physio, what I often see is plantar fasciitis and high hamstring tendinopathy. And almost the average length of time that they've had it for has been around about 18 months to two years. That's the average time frame that they've had this injury for before they see me. And usually they, they find my podcast and they listen to me and they they go to online physio. It's kind of like a last-ditch effort because they've usually seen a surgeon. They've usually seen a couple of doctors. They've usually seen like a Cairo, two osteos, two physios, and nothing's worked. And then they decide to do online physio. Um, so we, I have to deal with not only just the injury itself, but a lot of like chronic dealing with chronic pain and chronic injuries. And plantar fasciitis and high hamstring tendinopathies are ones that do persist like really they, they persist for ages and ages if you don't if if it's often mismanaged they don't heal on themselves if you continue to mismanage it so um that's what i see often and it's one, the ones that do linger and do tend to start to affect day-to-day life like people just walking around like standing at work the plantar fascia will be irritated or sitting if they've got an office job will flare up that hamstring tendon um so it's starting to affect their day-to-day life and yeah that's often what i see what what is that high high hamstring uh what is it again so it's a tendinopathy which is tendinopathy. like a um a flare up of the tendon and okay. if you look at the hamstring the hamstring attaches high on the sitting bone so like if you can sit and you feel those bones that you sit on that's where the hamstring attaches to and similar to like you would get an achilles tendinopathy or like um, a knee or plantar tendinopathy or even like a plantar fascia behave similar to like a flared up tendon. It's exactly the same with the high hamstring. Um, common in triathletes, common in um, like more sprinters because high mileage, like intense sessions um, going from the bike straight into a run, which is considerably fast, really demands a lot of the hamstring and then that tendon can be uh, flared up. But tendons don't like compression either. Similar to if you were to have plantar fasciitis and you to stand barefoot it gets really irritated because it's being compressed like the heel and the the ground or whatever the the firm surface you're standing on it becomes quite irritable because it's being compressed same with sitting when it comes to this high hamstring tendon so sitting can flare up this tendon which why it's become so nasty because people need to drive people need to drive to work they need to pick up kids they need to sit at an office job and that's when it could become considerably difficult to to manage Wow. So, um, so you do online, uh, for those listening, you do, you do online consultations, you do, um, um, and so, so how does that look and, uh, make sure you share your, the, the website, um, and yeah. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes too, but to, you know, explain how that, how that works out and what do you do for somebody that might be interested? Yeah, definitely. Like the first point of call I always instruct people to do is listen to the podcast and like build up your own information, build up like this episode itself is a perfect example of what my whole entire podcast is like addressing <laughs> nice. misconceptions, delving into the research, you know, interviewing researchers and all that kind of stuff. So do that first. But if you're still really struggling with managing your injury, then you come to me. Most people contact me just on social media, like Instagram or Facebook or something. But I do have a website. It's called breakthroughrunning.physio. 
and you book an appointment online like you would anything else. Um, you find a time um, and a day and you're automatically sent some like online forms you fill out. So what type of injury you have. And these are like smart forms. So depending on the type of injury, it will follow up with a different type. So if you say, okay, it's hamstring, is it high hamstring? Then I'll ask you about your sitting. Then I'll ask you about a whole bunch of other things. So okay. you're, you're answering those questions. Then you're also sent another um, questionnaire around tests that you do at home. So instructions on um, certain provocative tests. Um, and then you just fill out the, the online survey around like if it's painful, if it's weak, if it's not, if it's stiff, it's equal, if it's not equal to the opposite side. And so I get some detailed information. Then we jump on a call. We further clarify a few things based on your answers. We do a few tests at home. Um, and a lot of times with these chronic injuries, we don't need hands-on work. We definitely don't need hands-on work. Quite the opposite. We need education. We need active rehab. And so it's giving them strengthening exercises. It's giving them running programs. First and foremost, it's education around the right things and addressing yeah. all these misconceptions and allowing them um, the ability to like liberating them that they can actively overcome them this themselves and yeah, giving them the right tools to overcome. And if it's so be like, let's just say it's a stress fracture, let's say we have noticed that it's a stress fracture or it's something that's not applicable for online physio i'll recognize it i'll tell you um i'll give them a full refund i'll say you need to go either to um, get scans you need to go to your local physio you need to go to the local maybe like doctor or something i can give them a handover give me their information i'll tell them everything i've worked on with you give you a full refund go ahead and do that and that's their reassurance that they've made the right decision doing this online process um, but very rarely does that ever happen Less than 1% of the runners that come to me do need online physio. They don't need the immediate dry needling, shockwave, like massage, those sort of things. They just need, like I said, that education and empowering them that they can overcome them themselves. I love that. I, I, I love that. That that people are they're, they're gaining knowledge so that next, if it happens again, or you know, or hopefully that it won't happen again. You know, that's that's valuable, man. That's that's worth that's worth a lot. <laughs> yeah, knowledge so. goes a long way, which is why I, the first point of contact I always tell people is go to the podcast, build up your own knowledge first, um, because there are plantar fasciitis episodes, there are like all these other episodes that will really benefit you. Um, then if you're really struggling, like I, I'm almost like the last point of call for the online stuff because I don't want to see hundreds and hundreds of runners. I want them to all go to the podcast and build up their own knowledge because yeah. then they're spreading that information. They're spreading what they've learned today in this episode to the rest of the runners and they're showing people that, you know, stretching doesn't reduce your risk of injury. You're probably getting injured because of something else. It's not because <laughs> of your shoes. And we're rippling the right information back into the running community, which is serving a higher purpose and everyone's getting on board and everyone's a part of this team now. So um, that's why my point of call is for you to build up the information yourself. Uh, I love it, man. I love it. Well, Brody, thanks for, for taking your time and, uh, and, and, and sh man, you dropped a lot of information. I hope everybody was taking notes. They can listen again. And, uh, and I encourage everybody to go and check out the, the podcast, check out the website and, uh, and, uh, yeah, get, get informed, man. Thank you so much. Appreciate You're you. Welcome. Being can, I, can I maybe just like instruct people like when yeah. they go to the run smarter podcast, the first point of call, cause there's right at the moment, there's like 80 odd episodes. Um, I recommend people go back to episode one and listen to the first 10. So the first 10 are 
the 10 universal principles to overcome any injury. And even though you're not injured, these are 10 principles that you need to know to reduce your risk of injury. Um, so I'd always direct people to those first 10. Then you can start scrolling through all the other available ones to look at more specific stuff to you, like, you know, strengthening your calves or ITB friction syndrome or plantar fasciitis, those sort of things. That would be my first point of call just to make the call to action a little bit more sim simple yeah. for people. But like, yeah, the Run Smarter podcast is available like wherever you're listening to this. Sweet, sweet. Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, I'm going to go check those out. <laughs> yeah, you should. It's great. <laughs> Can't have too much information, man. Like seriously, yeah. Awesome, awesome. Well, I know uh, I know you've got the rest of your day to, to handle up with, uh, over there. And uh, I got kids to deal with over here, man. So we're going to have to... <laughs> <laughs> well, but but thank you so much, and um, I'll definitely be uh, putting all the information in the show notes and where people can contact you. And uh, yeah, thanks for being on, man. I appreciate it. I had a blast, David. Thank you very much.